Hey guys, one of the best ways you can support this podcast is by checking out our sponsors. So scroll all the way to the bottom of the show notes and check them out. If you do want or need any of their products or services, use the link under one of the sponsor's pictures or just click on the picture and you'll get an exclusive deal. Or you can just mention the Dental Marketer Podcast and they'll provide you with the exclusive deal as well. So pause this episode right now or once you finish the episode and scroll all the way down in the show notes and check out the deals our sponsors have for you. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Dental Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Arias. And in this episode, I am speaking with the very knowledgeable Trey Lawrence. If you are offering the patient anything of any financial value in exchange for that testimonial or that online review, all of that, you're going to need to disclose that in the advertisement that uses that. And that's why, I mean, the dental boards care about that, but the Federal Trade Commission really cares about that. That's a big and the consumer protection side of the Federal Trade Commission, that is a big deal to them, is paid customer endorsements or paid patient testimonials. And so, again, it's, it's one of those, not that you can't do it, but you need to know what the law is. And by far the biggest law, legal requirement here is you need to disclose that somewhere. Now, that doesn't have to be like, you know, big headline at the top of the page. It can be all that little fine print down mm-hmm. at the bottom of the page and a little footnote or whatever, but you need to have that footnote down there that says that the patient was compensated for their testimonial. He's been practicing law for over 20 years And now he is part of the AAO and we dive into it at the very beginning. You kind of hear me. I just shoot off questions after questions because we discuss the most common clinical issues with legal and listen to this episode, guys, bookmark it. Make sure you're also following him on his social media. We discuss how you have to be aware of some of the pitfalls and what are some of the common pitfalls with advertising and promotional issues. Guys, I think I made all the mistakes in the past when it comes to what we discuss here. Like questions, for example, like, hey, can we use painless or pain-free in our advertising? Like, hey, we're a pain-free, check out this procedure, it's pain-free or it's painless, things like that. Can we utilize that? What are some of the most common mistakes in patient contracts, especially when it comes to photo consents and stuff like that? We also discuss patient testimonials. How can we utilize patient testimonials? How can we utilize patient photos as well? And then we also discuss before and after pictures, how we can utilize them, how we can't utilize them. And here's the thing. This one's interesting. Can you give out something for patient referrals or reviews? So what I mean is, can you give an incentive Right, saying like, hey, we're going to give you a $25 gift card. We're going to pay you whatever. Just give us more referrals. Or if you send us more referrals, you'll win this iPad. You're entered in this raffle to win an iPad or whatever. Can you do that? And I know you're thinking, no. But guess what? You can with <laughs> You just got to be aware of uh, specific things in your state. So we dive into this. A lot of stuff, uh, my eyes were open and I'm like, wow, I'm so, I'm so happy I, I know this now especially for anybody who's like ground marketing. We discussed that too, specifically 
can you record videos or do specific things when you're at an event and post it? And if so, and other people are in the picture, how does that work? And we dive into all of that. And at the same time, we also discuss a little bit more of what uh, Trey thinks about dentistry, what he loves, what he hates about it, and what he wants to see more from practice owner or dentist. So guys, without further delay, here is Trey Lawrence. Trey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. If you don't mind me asking, where are you located right now? I am in my office in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Nice. Have you always been there? Or? I am, for the most part, a lifelong St. Louis resident other than some detours for school along the way. How did you feel when the Rams came back to L.A.? You know, that was a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge. They were here just long enough for us to all fall in love with them. You know, it was like the, it was like a summer, summer fling where you just have just enough time to fall in love and then it's ripped out from under you. So yeah, it was a little. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But that, that's okay, man. That's cool. Hopefully we might see what comes up for St. Louis. Right. But awesome. Trey. So tell us a little bit about your past, your present. How'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So currently I am vice president and general counsel for the American Association of Orthodontists. So I head all of our legal and advocacy or government relations work. Um, I've been in the practice of law for over 20 years. So I graduated law school, Washington University here in St. Louis in 2001 and went from there to a large law firm that's headquartered in St. Louis and has offices in a number of other cities around the country about six or 700 attorneys nationwide and practiced there for a little over 18 years before I came to the AAO. So I was in business and commercial litigation, product liability, class action, kind of a wide range of litigation-based practice areas. And then uh, had an opportunity, had been looking for a while to get out of the big law firm, to grind with the big law firm world and go on board in, in an in-house role, get to work for one client all the time instead of, um, working for many clients and had an opportunity to come over to the AAO and have been here for over four years. Love it. Love getting to, to get immersed in one particular field that, you know, the dental and orthodontic field, it's been a real joy. And that's really what I looked forward to getting out of the big law firm world was learning an area like that. So not just knowing the law, but being able to talk to doctors about clinical issues too, and then tie the law into that. So it's been a really good transition for sure. And I've enjoyed my time here, I enjoy bringing my 18 plus years of legal experience outside of the dental world to, to dentists and orthodontists now and helping them out that way. That's nice, man. Did you decide or when did you start deciding I'm going to expand outside of ortho? Um, that was fairly recently. You know, I, we're, we're always the, the perpetual battle as an organization. You're always looking for ways to be more effective in spreading your, your message and your information. And I felt like since the day I showed up at the AAO that we had a lot of good legal information, certainly for orthodontists and for our members. But the more I looked at that information, I realized, you know, this is not just limited to orthodontists. Really, the law is basically the same for dental practices across the board. It's not, there's not really any area of law that's just specific to orthodontists. It applies to all the dentistry. And then as I looked at the landscape, I realized there's not really anybody out there that was focusing on the law that applies to dental practices. There's lots of people that do it more for the medical world, but the dental profession has got some nuances that I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those today, some really specific nuances, and there really wasn't anybody covering that. And so one of the things that we tried to do 
at the AAO is not focused just entirely on the orthodontic world. We want to be a resource to the dental community in general in as many ways as we can. And it just seemed like a natural that with all this legal information that we had and nobody filling that space, that that was something that we could help out dentists, you know, all across the dental profession and not just orthodontics. Gotcha. So specifically, what's your day look like at the AAO? Like, what do you do? You have to deal with, what is it? Yeah. So, you know, break it down into several buckets. I mean, certainly the AO is an organization. You have all of the normal, the legal requirements of running a business, any business. So I have to deal with all the corporate matters, the tax matters, the, you know, the insurance and the, the corporate governance, all of those kind of things. So that's a piece of it. Another piece of it is I manage all of our legal information and resources for our members. And so that's the information, the, the forms that we put out that members can use log articles and other informational articles for them. We do a resident legal course where we go to the resident programs and present them with a three or four hour overview of the law that affects the dental practice. So that's all on the legal side. And then I also, like I said, I manage our advocacy team. And that's our, our government relations team. So we're lobbying at the federal and state level to represent, specifically represent orthodontists. But again, that's something that there's a lot of overlap with the rest of the dental community. So like when we go up to Capitol Hill, in D.C. and talk about student loan issues and the, the staggering amount of student debt. You know, certainly orthodontic residents graduate, but any any doctor in the dental profession is going to graduate with a lot of student loan debt. And so we talk to members of Congress, you know, those, those kind of issues. Again, there's a lot of overlap with the rest of the dental community. Certainly we work, you know, we work very closely with ADA and some of the other dental specialty groups on all of those kind of issues. Nice. Okay. So a lot busy. Your area of expertise yeah. is <laughs> you're really, really busy. So then let's let's dive into like a little bit more about these clinical issues or, or legal matters, right, that you kind of address. What can a dentist or practice owner do today to improve themselves in this aspect? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is really they need to be aware of where some of the potential pitfalls are and, and especially the pitfalls that are specific to the dental profession. And so that's you know, again, there's a lot of information out there for business owners generally, but the law is a little more specific and nuanced when it comes to dental practices specifically. So I think the vast majority of time that somebody in a dental practice gets into legal trouble, it's not, you know, some blatant, um, you know, attempt to break the law or disregard the law. It's just that they didn't know any better. And so, for instance, when you look at something like advertising or promotional matters for your dental practice, there are a lot of wrinkles that maybe you're not on people's radar and it's just being aware of those. And then if you're aware of them, you can take the steps you need to ahead of time to comply instead of finding out, you know, too late when you get a letter from the dental board, you've already messed up and now you've got a problem to deal with. So I think awareness is the biggest issue. And that's really what I'm trying to do uh, through some of these efforts, taking this legal information out to dental practices, just to raise awareness of what potential issues are. And then they can work to make sure they're in compliance with the law. Yeah. That's super important because uh, like I told you before we, we started a recording, I was on your Instagram, the ortho attorney, right? And um, yeah. <laughs> I was scrolling through some things and I'm like, oh, we were doing this in our practice. We did this. So when it comes to advertising and promotional issues, what are some of the most common or most ones that you've seen like, oh man, too many people are doing that. They're going to trip up and it, that's it. Yeah, no, there, there's, there's a bunch, unfortunately, and the more you get out on social media, the more you see of it. That's one of the, the benefits that, you know, lots of practices are on social media, so they're putting it out there publicly, and if you mess it up, it's out there 
publicly. So, so one big category is what you say in your advertising. And really where the, the trick here or the nuance that I was talking about comes down to is because dental boards hold dental practices to a higher standard of truthfulness and a factual support than even a normal business. I mean, it's no duh that every business has to be accurate in their advertising, but dental boards, because the public places a high level of trust in dentists as, you know, as medical professionals, the dental boards are going to hold those dentists to and their practices to a higher standard. So many states, their dental board rules will even specifically say that. And I always point to the Texas rules. Texas is a really good example. It's kind of a, a very comprehensive set of rules, kind of covers the whole universe of what dental boards a lot of other state dental boards will do too, but Texas has got a whole paragraph in their dental board rules that talk about the higher level of trust that the public places in dentists, and as a result, the fact that dentists are held to a higher standard of truthfulness. So that makes it, you know, for instance, that makes it really important that anything you say in your advertising for your dental practice, you've got to have a specific fact that you can point to to support that. You've got to have a specific piece of hard evidence to support anything that you're saying. So for instance, comparative claims where you're comparing your practice or your doctor to somebody else, you know, to say things like the best or the most, we're the, you know, we're the best provider or clear liner treatment in the city, or our doctor is the most knowledgeable or the most skilled or those kind of things. Those superlative claims are going to be really difficult to point to one specific fact that conclusively establishes that. And so that's the kind of thing Lots of businesses can say, oh, we're the best car dealer in town, that kind of thing. And there's nobody that's going to hold them accountable for that. The dental boards will hold practices accountable for saying they're the best dental practice in a town. And so that's the kind of uh, a statement that although you could say that in normal advertising for normal businesses, you got to be more careful in the dental profession specifically. Okay. Because I know like when it comes to like SEO and stuff like that, right? We tend to put that on our websites, like the best dentist in town or things like that. And so you you want to rank for those words because, I mean, like as the general population, we we automatically think that like, okay, let me search really quick the best dentist in town. So we can't, we shouldn't be ranking for that? Or what do you think? Like we should. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm certain, you know, one of the challenges of the lawyer is you always want to try to accomplish people's business objectives, but you just want to keep them out of trouble in doing that. You know, many times it's going, to, it's going to depend on the exact wording of your state's dental board rules. You may need to look at your specific state's rules, see exactly what they say. You may need to talk to a lawyer a little bit. You may need to find a lawyer that's, you know, got some experience in the healthcare world. You know, the dental world, again, there's not a lot of people focusing specifically on that, but you can maybe find somebody that's worked with some medical practices, too, because they have the same kind of issues and say, hey, here's what we want to say. We're a little concerned because we looked at the dental board rule and it says this, what do you think? And then hopefully they can help you work through that analysis. But, you know, again, this is all about raising awareness of potential issues. And so those best and most kind of claims, I at least want people to be aware there's some potential problems there and you need to look a little deeper before you just do it and not even realize that you're maybe, you know, stepping in it by doing that. Yeah, man, that's interesting. Another thing I I recognize is, and I think a lot of us do this, but we're kind of, some of us, I noticed we're becoming a little bit more aware of it, which is your goal, right? Giving incentives for referrals. So it's like, hey, give us a referral or drop us a review and you can be entered in this raffle to win like an iPad or this gift basket or whatever. How bad is that? That's another one. It's a really tricky area. And then too, 
like you said, it's incredibly common. I mean, you jump on social media for two minutes if you follow a lot of practices and you're going to see. I mean, everybody's doing that. So, obviously, keeping up with the Joneses, you feel like you need to do that. But I think, again, this is another one. You need, if you're aware of what the problems are, the fish problems, then you can make sure you're, you're in compliance with them and then you stay out of it. So, I'll, I'll break it down into a couple of different kinds of the promotions that people do like that. So, the drawing. Anything where patients get entered into a drawing. You have to be really careful there because every state in the country has got sweepstakes laws. So, you know, when you're, when you're doing your promotion on social media for patients to win an iPad or something, you're not thinking about sweepstakes. I mean, sweepstakes sounds like something that, you know, publishers clearing house. But if your promotion meets certain elements, then that's going to be is element of chance. Is there a drawing? Is there a prize of value? And then really the big one is do patients have to do something of value to get entered? And that's what distinguishes something as a sweepstakes versus like, you know, practices do these, oh, guess how many jelly beans are in the jar? And then, you know, the winner gets an iPad or something like that. They're not doing something of value economically for your practice by guessing how many jelly beans are in a jar. But if you get entered in a drawing because you make a referral to the practice or your new case starts, so you get entered into a drawing, then you're doing something of economic value. So if you've met all three of those, then you may potentially fall under the state sweepstakes laws. So that doesn't mean you can't do those kind of things, but that's, again, it's where you need to be aware. Every state, they'll allow sweepstakes, but you have to do certain things to be in compliance with the law. That's like written terms and conditions. You know, maybe you have to register with the state, those kind of things. It's something that's super easy to take care of. There are lawyers all across the country. They're experts in sweepstakes laws, and they can give you a template. Basically, you work with them one time, and then every time you want to do a promotion, you just fill in the blanks, you know, make a new set of terms and conditions and those kind of things. But if you don't do all that, there are going to be some pretty hefty financial penalties for not complying with sweepstakes laws. So let's say it's like $300 per violation and your practice has got, you know, 10,000 followers on social media. And so you pump out your promotion to 10,000 followers. Well, now you got 10,000 violations of the state sweepstakes law at $300 a pop. That can get pretty expensive. So it's just, it's know that it's a potential issue and then do what you need to to get in compliance with the law and then go for it. God. So we, I guess we, we could do this, those type of like raffles or for referrals and stuff, as long as we comply with the sweepstakes law? Yeah, absolutely. Even if it has all those elements, you know, that, that you have to do something of value to be entered. So it's for patient referrals and that kind of thing. You can still do it. You just need to know the law and comply with it before you do it. Mm-hmm. So, but, but once you, you know that, I always say, you know, it, it's easier to spend a few bucks on the front end of a problem than to spend a whole lot of money on the back end trying to clean it up. And that sweepstakes situation is a prime example of that. Spend a few bucks Talk to a lawyer, learn the sweepstakes law in your state, get your template, and then you just do it every time from then on, you know, manage it yourself. It's not a big deal, and you stay out of trouble that way. Okay, gotcha. Because I see it a lot of the times. A practice might just straight up say on one of these forums, like, you're not allowed to do that. You can't do that. But I guess we kind of can. We just got to look into our, like, we, what, do we just Google sweepstakes law in Beverly Hills or, like, California, right? Or, and then it'll give us the rundown? Yeah, it's going to be based on state, it's going to be state statutes. So you're going to want to look for your state, you know, Missouri, where I am, sweepstakes law. I can find it on Google. And then the written terms and conditions, that's the overarching. I mean, every state wants you to have written terms and conditions. You know, it's like if you go in McDonald's and you do the Monopoly, somewhere in the store, they've got the terms and conditions. 
all written out that if you ask for it, you can get a copy of it. So that's a big one on that state sweepstakes law. And you probably need a lawyer to write that up for you. But, but yeah, you can absolutely get on Google and at least, you know, get an idea of the landscape in your state and then figure out what you need to do to comply with the law from there. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So I guess like if people find it's worth it, definitely dive into it. Right. And learn more about it. I mean, I think they should just do it anyways, because you know what I mean? It would be a good way to kind of market, promote your practice and things like that uh, without having to feel like you're breaking the law or anything. Interesting. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. Yep. good, good. And then we're going to cover a wide array of things, but the mistakes that we make when it comes to the photos we take and share on social media, what's that entail? Yeah. So that's, that's a really hot button issue these days. And I'll, I'll break down why. So, I, you know, generally most people know if you're going to use a patient's picture, you got to get a release from the patient or if the patient's a minor, you got to get a release from their parents. I think most people know that. Now there's a wrinkle there. We'll point out, make sure that the scope of your release covers the scope that you're going to use the picture for. So you want your release to be specific about what you're using the picture for. My favorite story there was I had an AO member call in one time that had gotten a release from mom and dad to use the patient's picture. The, the patient was a minor, you know, kid. They were not very specific in the, in the release about what they were going to use the picture for. So mom or dad is driving to work in a major metro area a few weeks later and looks up at a billboard next to the interstate and there's their kid's picture and they had no idea you know they thought when they were signing that release that they were talking about the picture getting hung up in the office or something yeah. no idea they were talking about a billboard by a major interstate so to definitely make sure that the, your release covers what you're going to use for them. social media is the big one you want to make sure you know that mom or dad if you got again if you got ten thousand followers on your social media you want to make sure that mom or dad are comfortable and know that their kid's picture is going to be pushed out on social media on that scope. But most people know generally if you're going to take a picture, you got to get a release. But there's a lot of, it's very common. I know this from the orthodontist, certainly. It's very common that if you black out the face and you're showing just the teeth, a lot of people think that you don't need a release for that because you've blacked out the face. And it has been the law, but I'm aware of at least one case in one state, and it was in a HIPAA context, but the court specifically held that the teeth are so personally unique to each individual that they're personally identifying and that even though the rest of the face was blocked out, that that still constituted a HIPAA violation. So even though that was a HIPAA case, to me, that has potential implications for those release, you know, the photo releases, because it's the same logic. And so that was one state at this point that's not all across the country, but other states are not necessarily bound to follow the court decisions in one state, but they could. And so that's why I'm really mentioning to people these days about that case, because I think maybe need to think through, should I go ahead and get a release even though I'm blacking out the rest of the face? And, and to me, getting a, you know, asking for a release, is, it's a pretty low cost step. I mean, it's, it's not that hard. You do it for your patients, you're going to show their full face anyway. Mm -hmm. It's probably safer at this point to assume that, I mean, the, the law is very active to protect patients' privacy, you know, with HIPAA and everything. So I've got to just assume that other states may start to follow that. That's why I'm trying to put that out on people's radar now. Start thinking through that. Maybe it's a good idea. Not required yet, but it's maybe the safest thing to get yourself in the habit of asking for a release, even if you're going to black out the rest of the face and just show the teeth. Yeah, that's good. What about a scenario where it's like, let's just say you're at an event, right? And you're, you're there 
you have your booth and everything like that. And then you kind of do maybe like a Facebook live or you do like a, a video or a picture, right? And then you post it up and it's mainly about, you know, the booth, like, hey guys, we're here in Missouri, state fair, I don't know, handing out free toothbrushes, come by. Do we make sure there's nobody in the background? Like what if there's like a line and you know how you're like, I want to take a picture of that line of everybody lining up to see us. What about that? Yeah, that's one of those. I know, I know people get really frustrated all the time when the lawyers say, oh, the law, did, you know, it's different in every state. You got to find out what your state, you know, but, but unfortunately that's the case because it's just so hard as a lawyer, you know, especially it's a, for a national organization to know exactly what every state holds. So I, I can't just definitively say that no state is going to hold you legally responsible for those people off in the background or that kind of thing. But somebody who, you know, is like this big off in the background, to me, that legally, that's a little different matter than if you're showing somebody's full face or showing their teeth or really taking advantage, like especially a patient. You're using their patient's image to market your practice. You're saying, you know, we, we worked on their teeth and we did a great job and so you should come to our practice. That's a little different. You're, you're using them specifically for your advantage. That, that person that's way off in the background, you know, and is this tall you're not specifically using them to promote your, your business. And so I think that's where the difference is on those kind of things. The other thing too, with the big event, like you mentioned, most of the time people to register for a big event like that, there's usually some photo release language in there that makes them aware that it's possible that their picture is going to show up somewhere by, and by attending the event, they're consenting to the use of their, their photos. So mm -hmm. I think that helps as well, but definitely it's, it's are you intentionally using this specific person to benefit your business, you know, to market your business and the patient with the, the great after picture and all that? The answer is clearly yes. The, the bystanders, not so much. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And I know you mentioned um, it's probably best to give to all the patients, like in the patient consent form, like, hey, you know what I mean? Break it down for them and, and that you might use it. What are some common mistakes yeah, that you've seen with patient consent forms or patient contracts? Yeah, so, so one actually relates to those photo releases because I do get questions from practices that say, hey, is it okay if we stick the photo release in the patient contract? And the answer is that, to that is yes, but you want to make sure the patient's aware that that's in there, and especially for that one because that can be so objectionable to people if you're going to use their picture and they don't realize they're going to use their picture. So you can stick stuff like that in the contract, but make sure the patient knows it's in there, you know, probably have them initial the paragraph, put it in bold font, those kind of things. I mean, that goes with anything. Don't try to sneak stuff into the contract. And, and the more the more likelihood of the patient objecting to it, then you want to make sure the patient is aware that it's in there. So that's, that's one big one on the contract. Um, another one, especially on the orthodontic side, it seems like we deal with this a lot because a lot of times, kids will start treatment when they're teenagers and then they get done after they've legally become an adult. Mm -hmm. And so obviously if a patient becomes an autonomous adult, then there's a lot of things like, for instance, when the patient becomes the adult and mom and dad aren't, you know, they're not automatically entitled to, to see those kids' records at that point, unless the, the kid who's now an adult gives consent for them to. So if you've got a contract that was signed when the kid was 15 or 16 and it doesn't specifically give mom or dad that separate permission to, you know, to view the records and talk about treatment, those kind of things. So that's another one you got to think through when you enter the contract. So if it's a single dental procedure, you know, if it's just getting a cavity filled, it's going to take one visit, then obviously this is not the problem. 
for, for certain, you know, orthodontic treatment or maybe some endo or perio or stuff that goes on longer. And it's possible that the kid is going to become an adult while the treatment's still ongoing, then your contract needs to plan for that. And then, and then the final one that's always a challenge is divorce parent situations. And especially, you know, the, the breakdown of payment, we get that. And again, I think that's more of a problem on the longer term treatments, like the orthodontic treatment that goes on for a number of years, you know, not uncommon for mom and dad to get divorced while that's going on. And you've got a contract that doesn't take into account that there's two separate payers or anything like that. And then, you know, inevitably what's what happens is like dad stops paying his half and then, you know, mom doesn't want to be on the hook for the full amount. The divorce parent situations are always a problem on the on contracts. And, and the more, again, the more you can plan for that when you make the contract, the easier it's going to make it. Gotcha. How would you plan for that? Like the divorce parent situation, just kind of put that in the, like, if you guys, I mean, you don't want to mention that, right? Like, or do you mention it? Be like, this is like straight up just, you know, the law. If you guys get a divorce, this is what happens. Or how do you do yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I know that sounds, it's, you know, pessimistic. That's kind of stuff to give lawyers a bad reputation to begin <laughs> with, but you do have to plan for the for the problems. Uh, I mean, obviously it's easier if mom, you know, when the, when a patient first comes in, mom and dad are already divorced, then that's, that's easier. But even in those situations, again, a lot of times mom and dad, if they're already divorced, they want to split it 50, 50. And that's where you get into problems if one of them stops paying. So there's this concept in the law called joint and several liability, which says that, so they're both severally liable. They're both liable for their percentage but they're also both jointly liable for the whole contract. So if one of them stops paying, then the other one is responsible for the full contract price. And I know, I know they don't get happy about that, but it's not like they're not left with a recourse. The recourse at that point is to go talk to the judge and say, hey, judge, dad's supposed to be paying, paying 50%. He stopped paying. I'm having to pay 100% now, so you need to order dad to pay. It's a lot easier for a judge to sort all that out than it is for your dental practice the story that i mean your dental i would say your dental practice shouldn't have to be judge judy and try to figure all that out the joint and several liability is the way to handle that and so back to your question then i mean to me as the lawyer it's not a bad idea if mom and dad you know are married when the contract signed to have some joint and several liability language in there that says if you become divorced you know during the course of the contract then the, the two separate parties are both jointly and severally liable for the entirety of the contract, something like that, just to plan for that. So that if it does happen, you're not stuck in that situation I talked about earlier. That's good. That's really, really good. And so then let's just say the person gets work done ortho, right? They had really bad teeth before. Now they have really fantastic teeth and they're happy. And then you're like, I would love it if you gave me a testimonial, right? That way we can utilize it for our website. We can utilize it for social media. And they're like, of course, does the patient consent form cover that? Like the video testimonial or no, you have to do a whole separate thing. Like what can go wrong here? Yeah. A couple of things. I mean, number one, you want to make sure that you got their permission to use that, you know, in your advertising. So maybe, uh, you know, you could have language like that that's in the initial patient contract, but it might be safer to go ahead and have, you know, your standard release. And that could be the same as your photo release too. I mean, probably you're going to want to use their picture in addition to their, you know, whatever they say about your practice. So, but, but definitely make sure you got specific consent to use that. And then the other big hang up is that a lot of times practices will offer people some kind of an incentive to do that. 
Maybe we'll give out, give you a gift card, you know, if you let us use your testimonial or even you get entered into a drawing if you go online and, you know, write a positive review for us, those kind of things. So if you are offering the patient anything of any financial value in exchange for that testimonial or that online review, all of that, you're going to need to disclose that in the advertisement that uses that. And that's why, I mean, the dental boards care about that, but the Federal Trade Commission really cares about that. That's a big, and the consumer protection side of the Federal Trade Commission, that is a big deal to them, is paid customer endorsements or paid patient testimonials. And so again, it's, it's one of those, not that you can't do it, but you need to know what the law is. And by far the biggest law, legal requirement here is you need to disclose that somewhere. Now that doesn't have to be like, you know, big headline at the top of the page it can be all that little fine print down at the bottom of the page and a little footnote or whatever but you need to have that footnote down there that says that the patient was compensated for their testimonial the ftc cares enough about that they've got a whole resource available on their website you can find that pretty easily just google ftc paid endorsement and you'll be able to find that resource but they it, that's a big deal there have been a lot of businesses that have gotten dinged for not disclosing that they were endorsing I mean, that they were compensating paid endorsements or testimonials. So if you want to do that, absolutely do it. Just make sure you disclose it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, maybe I've heard of it like a couple of times, but like what I've seen a, quite a bit, Trey, is like, let's just say I'm starting up, right? And I, I just opened up. And normally when you just open up, you kind of have your friends and family come in, right? First and... And obviously the friends and family are going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to leave you a review. I'm going to make a testimonial. And then in their testimonial, they're like, this is the best dentist ever. Don't even go to anybody else. You're going to want to come here. They have the best everything. Is it okay for them to say that even though they're like a family member or friend? Or do you kind of have to still be like, hey, don't say we're the best. And you have to disclose you're a friend or family. Or What is the situation there? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the patients are given a statement of their own opinions. So that's a little different. Like everything I talked about using the words best or most and all that, mm-hmm. that's talking about what you as the practice say. So the patients have got a lot more leeway to give those kind of statements of opinion. Now, where you do have to be a little more careful is if you're paying, pay, you know, if you're giving the patients a gift to say some of that stuff, then you maybe want to be a little more careful about what they say. But like the scenario you just described where it's just your friends and family coming in at the startup and that kind of thing. I mean, if they really think that you're the greatest practice in the world, then they can they can go for it and say it. If you're giving them gift cards to provide you a testimonial, then you probably need to rein them in a little more and, and make sure that they're not saying some things that you couldn't say directly about your own practice. And then, of course, if you're giving them the gift cards, you also need to make sure you're disclosing that in the advertisement where you use what, you know, their statements that they're making. Yeah. Okay. Got you. Got you. Another thing I noticed in your Instagram, uh, the ortho attorney, is there was a thing there that says, be careful when you claim like pain free or you do painless treatment. Why? Yeah. So many states actually specifically have a dental board rule that says that, that you cannot advertise painless or pain free treatment. And actually that. Specific language, again, that came right out of the Texas rules, which, like I said, I used as a kind of a model a lot of times. So what that doesn't mean, you know, obviously there are dental practices all over that are work really hard to significantly reduce the amount of pain experienced by patients. And they use all kinds of, you know, light and 
heavy sedation or sleep dentistry or other treatment methods, whatever, you can absolutely advertise all of that. You can advertise the fact that we, you know, do all of these things to reduce the patient's pain or, or however you want to say it. But something about those specific words of pain-free or painless, I guess because it's not, you know, it's hard to guarantee that no patient will ever experience any pain whatsoever for your treatment. Those are the words that the dental boards specifically single out and actually have rules in many states that say you can't say those words. So I think it's a lot safer to say what you do to try to reduce the patient's pain. And then that's another one. If you want to use the patient testimonials, you know, I had the patient say, I was terrified. You know, I never wanted to go to the dentist because I hate pain. And I came in and they, you know, filled four cavities and, and I, it was great. And I experienced almost no pain. You know, there's different ways to say exactly the same thing, but not violate those rules. So I would look at that, but just really specifically stay away from those two words, the painless and the pain-free. Gotcha. Okay. But now, would that kind of fall into the same category? I noticed on there you also put, um, if you advertise as a specialist. So I've seen people do like, yeah, we're like a cosmetic specialist, or they say like, we specialize in cosmetic dentistry. Are both of those the same thing or one's not the other? Yeah, I, I mean, anything using the word special, you know, specialist, specialty, specialized, those kind of things. Again, that's one of those words. I guess it seems like the dumb words have really latched on to specific words, and the specialty, specialization word is one in particular. So in nearly every state, if you want to advertise as a specialist in a specific area, you have to have graduated from a postdoctoral CODA accredited program in an ADA recognized specialty. If you've graduated from a CODA accredited program in one of those, then you can advertise as a specialist, advertise that you specialize in that kind of treatment, that kind of thing. If you've not graduated from one of those programs or if it's an area that's not recognized as a specialty by the ADA, there's still ways, I think, to say the same thing, but you need to just be a little more careful about how you say it. So like with orthodontics, you can say, even if you haven't graduated from a postdoctoral orthodontic program, you can advertise and say, we do orthodontic treatment, we do Invisalign, we, you know, we can treat your malocclusion. You can say that you do all that work. You just can't say you're an orthodontist or that you specialize in orthodontics. So it's another one, just know, get on your state dental board website. Those rules are pretty easy to find too through Google. Look at exactly what the rule is. And, and you can say the same thing. You just need to use the words that are not going to get you in trouble. And I think in all those cases, talking about the services you offer is always going to be safe. It's just the specialty or the specialization. It's a little riskier and you need to make sure you meet the qualifications if you want to say that. Gotcha. Okay. Man, I appreciate it, Trey. I feel like I've just been like, what do you do this? What do you say this? What do you <laughs> like just shooting questions at you? No, no, no. The lawyers get that all the time. So no uh, worries. No, I appreciate it, man. Now, these next questions are just to get into the head of someone who isn't totally involved on the clinical side of dentistry, right? Like the day-to-day -day working in their mouth. For you, Trey, what would you like to see more from a dentist? Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing that I'm harping on all the time is the informed consent. And I think that goes back to my background in litigation, because in any kind of a malpractice lawsuit, informed consent is such a vital part of the legal defense there. And, you know, that, that being that the patient knew about the risks of treatment, knew about the potential complications and agreed to move forward with the treatment, knowing those risks. So then if they get the treatment, and those things happen, 
then the doctor can say, well, the patient agreed to that. They knew that was a risk and they agreed to that. So that is such a huge part of the defense, the legal defense in a malpractice case that I really get uncomfortable when practices don't really strictly comply with the law on informed consent. And I'll say that the biggest one is if you read all the ethical and legal literature, and this is on the medical side too, in addition to the dental, they say all the time, informed consent is a process and not a form. I think a lot of practices get really focused on the, in the, the informed consent form and like, well, if we get the patient's signature on that form, then we're good to go. Mm. That's not really what the law is. What the law is, is that the patient was informed of the risk and then agreed to, to move forward with treatment. And many times that's going to require a conversation with the doctor, meaning you can't have that patient sign an informed consent form before they've even seen the doctor. And there's a couple of states like Pennsylvania is one in particular. Pennsylvania, there's a Supreme Court case there that held specifically that the informed consent is a non-delegable duty, meaning that the doctor has to be involved in the informed consent process. So I know, I mean, again, you know, I mean, I know I'm the lawyer, but I understand all the business concerns. You know, there's efficiency. We like to have the patients fill out all the forms online before they come in. We don't want to bog down, you know, that initial uh, visit with this big stack of paper. We want to get them through, get their treatment started. You know, same day case starts. Totally get all of that. If I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, somebody comes into me and they were harmed, and I find out that they filled out an informed consent online when they were sitting home before they even set foot in your practice, I'm going to jump all over that as a plaintiff's attorney and say this patient had no idea of what the risks were when they supposedly agreed to start treatment, and that's going to be a major hurdle in the legal defense at that point. So. I'm going to, you know, the people who follow me on social media are probably going to get sick of hearing me harp on the informed consent, but I'd say this is probably the number one thing that I see practices really mess up. And again, I know why, because I know their workflow and they're trying to really get efficient on the front end to get the patients moved through and all of that. And I'm totally sympathetic to that, but this is a really important one. I mean, the first time you get sued and you had a patient fill out an informed consent form at home before they'd even set foot in the practice. You wish that you'd done a little differently. Yeah. God. So take the time to like talk to them one on one, right? When you meet them, you patient exam, you're like, hey, I noticed you signed this. So I want to break it down to you really quick what it's all about. Kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, definitely make sure you're having the conversation about the risk and the specific risks for their procedure. I mean, one of the things about sticking the informed consent just in your online stuff before the patient comes in, if, if you don't even know what treatment you're going to give the patient, then how are you going to explain to them the risks, you know, and the potential complications of a treatment? You don't even, you haven't even seen the patient yet. So you definitely, the conversation needs to be tailored to the treatment that they're actually going to receive. Once you know what treatment they're going to receive. And then the other piece is, you know, I know that like the treatment coordinator or some of the other office staff handle that part of the conversation. A lot of times doesn't mean you have to drag the doctor in every time, but at least make it available to the patient, you know, say, do you have any questions? Do you have any questions for the doctor before we get started? That kind of thing. And at least give them an opportunity to ask a question of the doctor directly before they get started. I think that's a, a big piece too. gets skipped over a lot of times. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. The next question is right now you as a, I guess like a patient and then at the same time, maybe as an attorney, but or is it a patient? What do you hate about dentistry or dislike? I think it's a really great question. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a newcomer to the whole thing. You know, I've been in the, the field for about five years or so. So there's a lot, 
I've learned that I love. I think probably the fact that it, it's so easy to get focused on the business side, kind of like that informed consent form that we're talking about. It's so easy to get focused on the business side. And I totally understand that because everybody's doing this to make a living. I mean, we're mm-hmm. not out there, you know, nobody's out there treating patients just purely out of benevolence. You got to earn a living too. And you got to be, have a efficient business that makes a profit and all of those kind of things. But I think there's a little bit of a tendency sometimes to get focused on Like if there's a dilemma between either a clinical or a legal concern and a business concern, just because the business side is what puts the dollars directly in your pocket, it's a little easy to, to lean that direction and, and just kind of hope that the clinical and the legal all works itself out. Like I always say, until the first time there's a problem and then you wish that you'd, you'd done it. So I know practices have got to focus on the business side. It's an increasingly competitive atmosphere that's so important, but just don't totally lose sight of the legal concerns as a part of that. Make sure you're aware of what the risks are. And yeah, sometimes it's a little more of a headache to make sure you're in compliance with the legal piece, but, but it's going to be better in the long run to do that. And so I hate, I, I, to get back to your original question, I think I hate the fact that sometimes the expediency of the business concerns can tend to outweigh the clinical and the legal a little too much sometimes. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And so then what do you love, absolutely love about dentistry? Again, there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, ultimately to me, I guess, again, coming from the big law firm world where people really are focused on bottom lines and everything you do is through the lens of, even in litigation, it's what's our risk if we go to trial and then we need to settle this case. It's all about dollars and cents. And there's so much more of a human element in dentistry and just that personal connection. I mean, inevitably, like why patients love their dentist, it's partly because they're skilled, you know, practitioners and all of that. But so many more times it's just because they love them as people. That, that human connection and the relationships that practices build up with their patients and the people that, you know, I, I read reviews like my insurance stopped. Dr. Smith was no longer a provider in my network, but I still go to him because I love him so much. Like that, just that human element to it is just really encouraging. Having coming over from the, the big law firm world, I never get tired of getting to see that kind of a dynamic go on, you know, and, and this, realize that's the world that I get to practice in now. Um, as a part of that. Do you feel, Trey, like in the big, I guess, like corporate law firm, or maybe not corporate, but just big law firm, there's not a human element to it? or I think it's a lot easier for it to get buried under the financial concerns. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think part of that, like in a dentist's office, you're, you're really making yourself vulnerable to your dentist. I mean, you're, really, you know, you're laying down in a chair and you're opening your mouth and you're letting uh-huh. somebody stick metal objects and needles and all kinds of stuff in there. So there's a vulnerability there. And I think the dentists do an amazing job of making sure that they respect and honor that and really build up the relationship the patient. Whereas in the law firm world, you know, it's, it's just all driven by bottom line. And if they, you know, you could have maybe represented a client for 10 years and then that client gets bought out by another company or something. And then you suddenly they're letting you go and they're going with cheaper options and, and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's just that, that human element gets outweighed by the money, I think, much more so in the big law firm world than it does in the, in the dental profession. Gotcha. That's good insight. Interesting. Really, really interesting. Trey, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. But before we say goodbye, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So the ORTH attorney, O-R-T-H-A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y. Kind of my home base is Instagram. I'm expanding out into YouTube and, and TikTok as well. Uh, but all the kind of subjects that we just talked about, 
and lots of other topics as well are going to be up there. We're trying to do them in a fun, you know, Instagrammy, real TikTok kind of way. Lots of stupid stuff and, and seven second reels and all of that. But trying to keep it fun. But at the same time, we realize we're talking about legal topics. You got to have some more in-depth information too. So we've also got some longer, you know, carousel type posts up there where you can dig into a topic a little more. And then if you really want to dig into it, then you jump over to YouTube and you can watch a 10 or 15 minute video talking about some of those subjects as well. But um, we're, like I said, we're really trying to make sure that we, what are the, what are the hot button issues that dental practices really need to know about and maybe don't know about legally and then raise the awareness on those issues. And that's what we're trying to do all of that. So Instagram, YouTube, the Orth Attorney, come check us out and, and hopefully you'll find a lot of useful information there. Yeah, nice. I didn't know you guys had a YouTube, but I thought that was really nice. A lot of the questions that y'all heard today are on the Instagram. Um, so definitely go check that out. It's going to be in the show notes below. Just click the link and hit a follow and yeah, learn. You're going to learn a ton from uh, Trey. But Trey, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure and we'll hear from you soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that episode. I hope you got a lot out of that episode because I know we did. So if you guys want, make sure you go in the show notes below, reach out to Trey. It's the ortho attorney on Instagram and also on um, YouTube, but it's going to be in the show notes below anyway. So reach out to him if y'all have any questions or concerns. And Trey, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us and letting us pick your brain a little bit more. Thank you for that, bud. And guys, don't forget... Scroll all the way to the very bottom of the show notes and you can support the podcast by checking out our sponsors. If you need any of their services, remember, you get an exclusive deal with them. So make sure you click on those links or click on the images if you need any of their services. And yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. I appreciate you guys for listening and thank you so much. And I'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye.